Welcome back to another episode of Creedle. I am joined today by my friend Alexi Sargent, who has not been on this podcast before, but he's been on Vernacular, the predecessor to this podcast. Alexi is a, a, a man of many talents who's done a lot of things. Uh, I, I will read to you some portions of his bio here, just so you get a flavor for the things that Alexi has done and is interested in. Uh, but he's on today, joining me on the show to talk about fasting and feasting in the life of the Christian and why those things matter and why we should take them more seriously and really fully participate in the fasting and feasting seasons of the church. So Alexi, welcome to Creedle. So good to be here. So good to have you. It's been a long time since we talked and I'm really glad that I could could finally get you onto Creedle. Um, I know also you were expecting a, a, a baby girl coming in the next four weeks or so. So congratulations to you and Leah on that. Thank you so much. To my listeners, Alexi, as I mentioned, a man of many talents. He's a writer, a playwright, a game maker. We'll talk about that a little bit, uh, who lives and works in the greater D.C. area. He writes at places like First Things, The New Criterion, The American Interest, The Weekly Standard, The New Atlantis, National Review, Commonweal, Acculturated Alatea, and The American Conservative. He's a Yale graduate, 2015 graduated from Yale with a BA in English and theater studies, and then for a while served as a junior fellow at First Things, and then uh, and then worked at Magnificat and put together some of that great content if any of you are Magnificat subscribers. But he loves telling stories, loves directing stories as a playwright and theater director, and also loves uh, designing stories through tabletop board game creation. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, also want to mention, of course, uh, last but certainly not least, Alexi is married to Leah Labrasco Sargent, and they have Two daughters, including the one that is due to arrive um, uh, in February. So we're really, and I guess as I say this, uh, we're really releasing this. I wanted to get this recorded um, now, but we, and it's a good thing I did because of your daughter's arrival, Alexi. But really, <laughs> by the time we release this, you will have welcomed uh, your daughter into the world. So I guess a double congrats in that sense. Yes, thank you very much. Well, uh, as I mentioned, a game creator, Alexi, uh, what does that mean? And uh, what games do you create? And where can my listeners find out about some of these games? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I create games under the gaming handle Cloven Pine Games. Uh, so that's some board games, lots of tabletop role-playing games, right? So if, if you're thinking Dungeons & Dragons, you're thinking the right genre, though I'm making, you know, little bespoke indie games, uh, including one that might be particularly interesting uh, to listeners of this podcast. I'm working on a game called Autumn Triduum, where you play as religious sisters defending their convent against the forces of darkness from All Hallows' Eve to All Souls' Day. So that is a uh, role-playing game with a heavy infusion of faith, but hopefully in a way that is fun and accessible for any player that wants to pick it up. Um, you can learn about my games and uh, buy some of them at uh, Cloven Pine Games online. So there's a Cloven Pine Games storefront on itch.io. There's a Twitter uh, account uh, under Cloven Pine Games or a Substack uh, where I have kind of nice. monthly gaming reflections I send out. Yeah. So anywhere on the internet, check out Cloven Pine Games and you'll find out more about the gaming stuff that I do. And I will I will link those in the show notes. If you have an interest uh, in checking out Cloven Pine Games, please do. Alexa, when you say a tabletop game, is that does that always mean a board game, or are there tabletop games that are not board games? I'm a I'm a, I'm an ignorant gaming person, so help me out here. Sure, a tabletop kind of just distinguishes it from video games, right? Okay. So yes, board games, but also card games or 
uh, role-playing games where you're rolling dice on a table, but a lot of the game is being created in the conversation between the players and the imaginative world that's unfolding through that. So I think I've never played one like that. Mm -hmm. I've played, obviously, a lot of board games, um, uh, including recently Root. Have you played Root before? I have not played Root the board game. I have played Root the role-playing game, which is a role-playing game based on that board game. So this is maybe a really good sort of point of departure for what I was going to ask. But what what does it look like to have a role-playing game where there's no, you know, I'm just so used to, if I play play a game, I'm so used to, absent just a card game, you know, uh, I don't know, poker or go fish or whatever. (laughs) I'm so used to having like a board to sort of center the activities. So what is it like to not not have that anchor, if you will? Yeah. um, It means that, the conversation between the players becomes the stuff of the game, right? And the game's mechanics may say, you know, when you describe your character trying to do such and such, roll dice to see how you fare, right? And then hopefully the dice give you some more interesting input into your story, kind of giving you prompts that will push you away from whatever you might have done by default, right? That's kind of how I think of the mechanics as things that feed into the story and give you new material. And then... Uh, it all goes back to the story though, right? It, it doesn't uh, mean you're moving pieces on a board. It means you're, you know, returning to whatever, you know, tale of adventure, say you're spinning with your friends. And then you describe how, you know, because you've rolled high, your character has a extraordinary success and everyone, you know, applauds, or you describe how, because you, you've rolled low, your character suffers a humiliating setback, but yeah. you know, they'll learn and do better next time. Right. That's that's fun and really interesting. Let me ask you this: Have you found that since becoming a parent, you have you have suffered a corresponding loss in your available time to to play tabletop games? It definitely changes things uh, having yeah. having a little person around. Um, fortunately, she does have a bedtime. Uh, so yeah. sometimes what that means is you know we put her down to bed and then we're you know playing with friends after that. Yeah. I've just found, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not into, I'm not really into board games. I enjoy them from time to time, but um, most of the sort of like niche, I mean, even Settlers of Catan is not really a game that I've enjoyed historically. Hmm. I'm open to trying it again, uh, but it's just not one that that I played it once, I think, in my life. And it was just like, yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, I could take it or leave it. Not amazing. <laughs> so it's not really in my nature to be a really big board gamer. Um, but I've heard about these games that can take, you know, six, six plus hours to complete or on the upper end, I've even heard of ones that take multiple days. And I just think well, there's no way that could happen in my house because we would lose all the pieces, you know, like the, <laughs> the board game, the board would get knocked off repeatedly and everything would be lost. So it just, it just, it's, it's impossible to do that in my household right now at this stage of life. Yeah, I guess this is another advantage for, you know, theater of the mind games where there yeah. isn't a board to knock over. Yes. Yeah. Very true. I'll have to check one of the, So if I was going to try one of those, more role-playing games where there isn't necessarily a board to sort of anchor the action. Is there a recommendation that you'd have for, for where to, maybe a cloven pine one or maybe something uh, a little bit more accessible if, if yours are not, I don't know. It depends on what genre you're into. Uh, a game I created that's meant as a good on-ramp game for first-time players is called Secret Science Sewer Siblings, where you play as a family of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Critters who have to rescue nice. their mentor from dark forces, right? Uh, now, of course, that relies on a very particular genre touchstone. So if you're okay. not into the, uh, the the source material that I've cleverly written around the trademark of, uh, then maybe that's not a great first game. But if that's something that gets you excited, it is meant to be a good game that can, you know, 
teach you how this sort of game works. I, that sounds that sounds interesting to me. I'll give it a shot. So then, do you do you build an entire narrative around this game? The the game is the narrative, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, what about you as the creator? Do you build like a you you build a whole sort of like preamble, a preparatory narrative to get people into the game, and then they create the narrative? Yeah. So this game, because it's meant to really like bring you on board, it has um it has a whole it has a situation, right? Now you you have the freedom to build a character that fits into that situation, but the game tells you you're a family, your mentor is kidnapped, you need to rescue them. Uh, Other games don't necessarily specify all of that, but this one kind of gives you that so that there's some momentum, right? So that it kind of pushes you into the story. Yeah, that's cool. All right, I will, um, I'm going to check it out at Club and Pine Games and I encourage my listeners to do the same. And it is free. Well, there you go. Free 99. That's the best, the best price of all. (laughs) Um, Alexi, let's dive into our topic today, which is, as I mentioned already, fasting and feasting. Not, not a surprise to you, of course, uh, since we've talked about this already. Um, but when we talk about fasting and feasting, uh, we talk about this as Catholics in the context of the, the liturgical year. Yeah, the liturgical year is the it starts with the beginning of Advent and it ends with Christ the King Sunday, at least in the Latin Church, just before Advent. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the liturgical year provides us as Catholics an opportunity to um, to build a rhythm of our lives um, and to sort of embrace the life of Jesus um, and enter into his sufferings, enter into his victories, um, and ultimately to enter into his great and final victory. But beyond that, why does the liturgical year matter? I mean, I think... Um, <laughs> I think a lot of times it feels repetitive. Um, I think a lot of times it feels like a lot of drudgery, especially, and I can even speak for myself here, when you're you know, four, four or five weeks deep into Lent and there's not really an end in sight um, and you're really trying to do the fasting thing well and trying to do the penance thing. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it just feels like an awful lot of drudgery. You know? And Lent is especially tough because you're, you're often in the middle of Lent. You're still in sort of like the dark gray parts of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and it can just be tough. So, so there are reasons to, uh, to, to not embrace the liturgical year, but why does it matter and why should we embrace the liturgical year? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we are embodied beings and particular beings. And so the way God has saved us is through embodiment and particularity, right? This is the truth of the incarnation, right? You know, part of the great mystery of God become man. And it's the truth of the liturgical year as well, right? In the, in the liturgical year, um, we have this cycle of time that points us outside of time and towards eternity. Uh, so rather than having our life moving forward in a sort of undifferentiated way, right? Or thinking of our life as a a circle that never ends, we have this liturgical year that gives us gives us a cycle. You could almost think of it as a spiral where hopefully as the events of Jesus's life recur in memory in our life, we are able to go go deeper into them and go further out from our kind of holy uh, mundane experience. So embodiment and particularity, uh, this, is, this is a part of us and this is a part of the uh, new structure to time uh, that you know, God kind of offers us in the form of the, the liturgical year. And um, I, yeah, I think that's a really good point that you mentioned. When you say particularity, let's unpack that word a little bit more. So embodiment, we are, we're not just simply souls. Uh, we are not just simply souls that sort of happen to inhabit a body for a time and, and place. 
uh, for the temporal existence that we have, but actually we are souls who, who are embodied. Uh, we don't, uh, we don't have a body. We are a union of body and soul. We are not a body. Uh, we are union of body and soul, but we are also not just a soul, right? So that's what we mean by embodiment. When you say particularity, let's unpack that a little bit more. Um, what, what is, what does that word mean in this context? Sure. Um, sometimes there's discussion of the scandal of the particular, right? The way that, um, for example, you know, God chose a particular woman to be the mother to his son, right? You know, Mary, uh, uh, we, we revere her, uh, uh, but there's a sort of sense of like, you know, oh, she's, she's this single person, right? This, you know, particular mm -hmm. person that's been, that's been picked out for this. Uh, and, you know, basically God is not scandalized by the particular and God is willing to enter into the particular to save us and to, to use particular people, uh, particular times, particular places, particular means to, to reach us. So rather than, you know, the universe kind of broadcasting his message in a all encompassing way, uh, it's through particular people and places that uh, graces often come to us. Um, now I don't want to uh, overstate this. We do also know that uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, but in the particular, God's glory is is also declared, and sometimes you know that is the key way that He reaches us and changes our lives. Um, that's it's all well said, uh, but to, to to use your point about the heavens declaring, I mean, the heavens declare God's glory in a particular way, right? The heavens declare God's glory in a way different from the bumblebee, hmm. which also declares His glory. And so I think um, it is true that all of creation declares His glory, but all of creation in its particularity displays His glory. And I like your yeah. point about how the particularity really extends not just to to space, to the, to the things that we see, to the things that inhabit the world, but also to time itself. So there is particularity in time. And I think maybe the the most powerful illustration for me that I've thought about uh, is that Jesus Christ, who was incarnate, uh, died at a particular time and in a particular place. Mm. Right. So there's there's so there's a particularity to God's saving works of salvation um, that gives a, gives sort of, I think, impetus to the liturgical year as well. Gerard Manley Hopkins, the, uh, the English Catholic poet, is in some ways the poet of particularity. I think if you turn to uh, his poems, you'll see a uh, recurring theme of, you know, how uh, God's wonders are shown forth in each thing being itself emphatically. That's great. Yeah, that's exactly. I think that's illustrating exactly what we were talking about. Um, yeah, the, yeah, that's neat. Okay, uh, let's move on to the next question I had for you, which is simply why is feasting important? And I want to get to fasting as well, but let's start with the easy one. Why is feasting important? This is the one that you never have anyone object to this, right? It's it's a <laughs> feasting season. Let's uh, let's eat good food and enjoy the time. You have you have objections to fasting, but not to feasting. So why is feasting important? Mostly, I mean, you 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 can find historical objections to feasting, right? You can okay, find yeah, that's fair. Strains I mean, I of Christianity that were more suspicious of of feasting, but um, I, but I guess no. even now, I, as I said that though, I was also thinking you are you do have people who are like, no, I'm a I'm a one meal a day. I'm on the intermittent fasting thing right now, and I can't break that. It's this is for optimal optimal health efficiency so that I can <laughs> live forever and upload my consciousness to the cloud. It's like, so, yeah, I guess there are objections to feasting, but they're they are fewer and farther between uh, yeah. than objections to 
uh, fasting. Yeah, you know, feasting feasting is an affirmation of things that are very strongly part of our nature, right? You know, we uh, we do you know want uh, food and 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 good company and the chance for merriment and you know in the feasts of the liturgical year we see that desire uh, you know baptized and sanctified. We see you know our uh, we see our you know, drive towards uh, towards community and celebration placed in the context of of salvation, uh, and so we have feasts celebrating Christ, celebrating the saints, feasts all through the church year, but particularly the great feasts of of Christmas and, and Easter, Pentecost, right? These kind of moments of uh, commemorating turning points in the history of the universe, right? You know, milestones in uh, Christ's life and the way He uh, worked our salvation. Um, that we celebrate in high style. And that is important, you know, not only to commemorate these things that are true, but to, uh, to live out what is best in these human impulses towards celebration. Uh, and that one I think is easier to understand as well, right? Because the, of course we want to embrace uh, the fullness of our humanity and our human desires. And that is a, that's a, that's a nice thing to do. Fasting on the other hand, not a, not a fun thing to do for sure. Uh, and in the Latin rite, especially in the U S we have it pretty easy. Um, you know, it used to be the case that you abstain from meat every Friday and then the USCCB relaxed that restriction. And now it's, uh, now it's recommended that you abstain from meat on Friday, but if not, then, you know, substitute a, uh, a suitable penance right. in practice, in my experience, uh, in practice, even that is not really widely acknowledged as what the sort of the, the rule or the expectation is. And so most, most Catholics, um, and maybe not most listeners of this podcast, uh, that's kind of a different demographic, but I think just most, most Catholics in the pew on Sundays don't in particular have a Friday penance at all. Um, and so fasting, it seems to be the case that fasting has gone out of fashion somewhat in the Latin church today, at least in the U S. But if you, uh, if you talk to your Eastern brethren in the Eastern churches and my family and I now worship at a, at an Eastern Catholic church, um, Alexi, Hmm. Uh, they take fasting very seriously and there's yeah. the great fast, uh, in Lent and it is, it is very hardcore. Um, and so, so there's, there's a whole different culture of fasting there. But, um, John Paul II, Alexi said that we are an Easter people. <laughs> and so if we're an Easter people, why should we fast? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course we are an Easter people. You know, that is, that is the heart of the thing, right? The, the resurrection, the empty tomb. Um, however, you know, Lent and it's fasting, while it co contrasts with Easter, it is not opposed to it, right? It is the necessary preparation for it. Uh, for example, um, uh, St. John Paul II, he said, we are an Easter people and Alleluia is our song. Uh, but of course, we fast from Alleluia itself, you know, among other things uh, mm -hmm. during Lent. We kind of remove from, uh, from the Mass and from our liturgical prayers that, uh, that great shout of joy, Alleluia, so that we experience a true hunger for it. Right, mm -hmm. we can really understand the blessing and the meaning of Alleluia when Easter arrives and Alleluia returns. Uh, so, I think it's not in contradiction to the fact we are an Easter people that we also have Lent and that we also have seasons of penance and preparation before our great feasts, and that we have fasts that uh, that are counterpoints to the moments of celebration and exuberance in our you know life as a Christian people. Yeah, I love what you said there and how you connected the fasting to the feasting because th without the feasting, the fasting really makes no sense. 
now even if even if on this side of the veil we really are only fasting and some christian mystics have right survived on bread and water in the eucharist for example for extended periods of time uh that even for them i think was a preparation for the final feast of the beatific vision um but yeah but, absolutely but say say more about that alexi how does how does the feasting ultimately make sense of our periods of fasting yeah I, well i think i think you hit the nail on the head right that the final feast is the wedding feast of the lamb right union with god in heaven you know is the feast that all of our earthly feasts are pointing towards and that all of our earthly fasts are preparations for just as you know the fact of our you know life with its times of suffering and darkness on earth can be thought of as a fast in preparation for the you know feast we hope to be part of uh in the company of of all of the saints so i think um you know if we think a little about what feasting teaches us right what does feasting tell us about the meaning of human existence well it tells us we are made to enjoy god forever mm -hmm. right you know that's a um a formulation from a catechism I grew up with, you know, uh, what is the, the chief end of man? Yeah. Uh, the catechism. I grew up with that as well. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 the wording that I had was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. forever right. Yeah. And, and that is bound up in, in the whole concept of feast, right. That, you know, ultimately the reason for the feast is God, our maker who has made us to glorify him and enjoy him. Yeah. That's no, beautiful. Yeah, I didn't mention at the beginning uh, to my listeners that Alexi, like myself, is a convert, uh, also from Anglicanism, right, Alexi? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I grew up going to you know the, the type of Episcopal parish in America that you know uh, talks about itself as Anglo-Catholic, right? You mm -hmm. know, leans into that tradition, and you know there there came a point where. Uh, that became less tenable, right? You know, do doctrinal conflict with the diocese we were a part of became legal conflict. And then my family had to decide, you know, where it was God was leading us. And we, we took a good look at, you know, the way we'd been formed and, you know, whose writings had been really influential in, you know, our walk with Christ. And there were so many Catholics represented, right? From uh, St. Augustine to St. Thomas Aquinas to uh, G.K. Chesterton, um, we realized we should really take a look at becoming Catholic at that point. Um, and this is when I was beginning college uh, that we as a family set off on this journey and uh, we were received uh, into the church uh, all together during my sophomore year, uh, thanks to help from uh, wonderful Mercedarian brothers at a parish in Philadelphia who were able to answer some of our questions and help you know, guide us over the, uh, the threshold to uh, become part of the Catholic church. That's amazing. And what a gift to be received with your whole family. Absolutely. That must have been beautiful. When I was received, it was with my, it was with, because I was married and had, had one, we had our oldest at the time. So it was with my, my family in the sense of my wife and my child, but my parents obviously and siblings did not and have not become Catholic mm. um, since then. But what a beautiful thing to be received with your parents and your siblings. That's, yeah, that's amazing. And, and my, my wife, Leah, is also a convert, though she came up from uh, atheism. So she took kind of a, a, a longer road, I feel like. I was, uh, I was well set up by yeah, Anglo-Catholic sure. background to eventually embrace the, the fullness of the Catholic faith. Yeah, and for folks who want to hear Leah's story, she was actually on the, on the podcast uh, in, in the early days. I think it was summer 2019. 
uh, ah. that Leah came on to talk about her journey from atheism. I will look up the, uh, the episode number um, and get back to you in just a moment. But I was actually going to ask about um, what you just said, being well set up, Alexi, when you said you were well set up, do you think that, oh, here, actually, episode six, episode six of this podcast was with Leah, and she told her story there. Oh, fantastic. Um, but when you said that you were well set up, uh, do you think that you were well set up to embrace the liturgical year as well? Obviously, Anglicans have a liturgical year, but in my experience, that, I don't know what yours was, in my experience, it was it was um, observed to varying degrees, not dissimilar to the way it is in the Catholic Church now, but I think yeah. your preparation would kind of depend on what parish you went to and what your church community was like in Anglicanism. Yeah, no, I, I was very fortunate. I had a church community that really embraced the liturgical year. In fact, I've got a stack of books next to me that I, I pulled for our conversation, things that I thought would be might be interesting to reference while we're talking about fasting and feasting and living with you know the liturgical seasons. And one of them is this, this uh, book for young readers called My Book of the Church's Year um, by Enid M. Chadwick, uh, which is like the most British name possible. Super uh, British, wow. Uh, and it, it's, really it's a lovely uh, Anglican classic uh, of, you know, explaining the church the church year in you know uh kind of beautiful oh, beautiful wow. illustrations that are good for for children so i'm definitely What's going to called? uh my book of the church's year so as my book of the church's year okay. as my uh children get older i'm definitely going to you know use this book to introduce them to things because you know it is uh substantially the same as the catholic liturgical year with a, a, a few small differences we can note <laughs> That's uh, I'm definitely going to get this for our kids as well. This looks wonderful. I just went to anglicanhistory.org and they have a lot of the pictures from the book in it. The illustrations are wonderful. Yeah. Aren't they beautiful? Yeah. Podcast listeners. They're beautiful. Look them up. Yeah. Seriously. Anglicanhistory.org slash children slash Chadwick underscore year. <laughs> um, well, great. What other, what other books do you have there that we should talk about, Alexi? Oh, so this one's a lovely one. Um, Catholic household blessings and prayers. Uh, so this is just a, you know, nice uh, full resource of different prayers to pray as a, as a family and a household. And it has sections that connect up with the, the, it has sections that connect up with the liturgical year. So, you know, recently, for example, we, um, we chalked our doors for epiphany and we did that uh, using prayers that uh, were from, from this book. And it has, you know, commemorations of many other feasts throughout the year and, you know, suggestions for ways to pray together in the household, you know, all through the church's year. We have that in our household as well, Lexi, but your version, your edition looks a lot newer than ours. Ours is, is the cover is falling apart and it is uh, it's like a maroon burgundy color, not this kind of gold yellow. Yeah. This may have been a, a more recent uh, version they put out. Uh, definitely worth uh, looking up if you're interested in kind of prayer within the home. Yeah. I, I think it's in it. I, I definitely second your recommendation about that because it is wonderful for families and households uh, and just has a lot of resources in there. We, we break our book out. Actually, we do it many times nightly because um, I don't know if you've seen, there's a, it's, it's page 328 in our edition. I don't know if it's 328 in yours. I don't know if they changed the page numbering in the new edition, but page 328 in ours is the um, evening intercessions. And we fell in love with those evening intercessions before we moved here and started attending a Byzantine church. But it turns out those intercessions are actually Byzantine. Hmm. And, uh, and we went to, we went to a divine liturgy at the Byzantine church and we're, we're recognizing the words and thinking, Oh, these, these are the words we've been praying in our evening, in our family evening prayers for the last six months or so. 
Um, that's that's wonderful. It is definitely not quite the same page okay. numbers because <laughs> right. I opened to 328. It's like blessings of a family vehicle. Okay, yeah, that's, yeah, that's not, fun, not exactly, but that's different. Yeah. We don't bless our vehicle every night, but that's a good thing to do. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, I, yeah, I definitely recommend recommend uh, second your recommendation of that book. It's a good one. Uh, we do the um, when when bir- anniversaries of births, obviously birthdays. So that's the, the more common word for for birthday. Uh, when birthdays roll around and anniversaries of baptisms roll mm-hmm. around, we uh, we use the prayers in that book as well. So lots of lots of good resources in there. That's wonderful. Um, last one I'll highlight here is yeah uh, one called the, the Little Oratory, uh, which is by uh, David Clayton and uh, Lila Lawler, and it is. Um, you know, also about prayer in the home, but it takes as kind of its focal point, the idea of making a little holy space in your home. So, you know, it can be quite simple, right? You know, just a table with a cross on it and maybe some um, religious art. Uh, but uh, we were inspired by this. And so we, we've we set up our little oratory, including with a, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a cloth that matches the color of the liturgical season. So we kind of are in some ways just primed to pay attention to you know what's happening liturgically yeah. or when a saint's day comes because like all right time to switch from the ordinary time green to the saint's yep. day white you know let's right. see if we That's have right. the specific holy card for that saint um it's created a little tradition also where i, I um get leah some new holy cards each christmas so that we you know oh, expand cool. our collection and you know have kind of more saint's days covered where we'll be able to have little art of the particular saint at the oratory in a way that reminds us to ask for their intercession and you know think about their lives and the example they set of uh, yeah. living a christian life that's wonderful uh we do the same thing we have uh we call the family altar but it, yeah little the little oratory um place for our prayers to happen and I, that's been a great family practice uh, one of our favorite liturgical year uh, things that we do is at the end of the liturgical year, the Saturday before Advent one. Mm-hmm. So this is normally late November. We um, take a piece of paper or several pieces of paper and write a bunch of names of saints. We just shout them out. If you think of a saint, write down the name, etc. And then we break all those pieces of paper. We cut them into strips and then we put those strips into a hat or a bucket or something. And then we, we pray. We pray for the Holy Spirit to help us choose. Uh, and then we close our eyes and we pull out the names of two saints, one one male saint and one um, one female saint. And then those are our saints for the, our patron saints for our family for that year. So those are the saints to whom we uh, we ask the intercession of. Uh, and that's been a really fun tradition to do. Our kids have, I think we've done it for three, maybe even four years now. And our kids love it every year. It's just a really big, exciting family thing that we do at the end of every liturgical year. I think that's a really wonderful tradition. Um, yeah, I thought of one thing, uh, my daughter is about to turn two, so she's kind of, you know, only starting to understand things about, yeah. you know, the faith and the liturgical year, but we do as part of her bedtime routine, sing the, uh, Marian antiphon for the current season. So there's four Marian antiphons and they are kind of themed to the seasons of the year. Uh, as we're recording this, we are in the kind of the greater Christmas season, right? You know, after Epiphany, after Baptism of the Lord, but uh, bef- before the um, you know, the you know day known as, as Candlemas or the Feast of the Presentation, uh, which is the sort of you know end date of the like extended Christmas right, season. Right, so, yeah. so yeah, we, we have listen to Christmas music up until Candlemas. So exactly, that's that's how it works. So, so we are um, praying, you know, Alma Ritum Torres Mater, or really singing Alma Ritum Torres Mater as. Uh, part of Beatrice's, you know, bedtime routine, and that will that will switch up, you know, after Candlemas, yep. and that's beautiful. You 
yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a nice way to just, you know, bring a little bit of beauty from the church's year and, you know, peg it to the seasons uh, so that Beatrice is familiar with that from an early age. Yeah. One of the things that we've been sort of talking around, but not directly saying is that I, I think one very good reason to observe the liturgical year in your life, in your family life, in your home is to, is to bring the church into your home. Yes. It's very easy, especially now to go to mass on the days of obligation. Maybe you'll hit a daily mass here or there when you're not you know, obliged to go. Imagine that. Uh, and to sort of be, be immersed in the, not really immersed, but sort of dip your toe in the liturgical year that way because you have to, because you're going to mass, because you're a, because you want to be a Catholic in good standing, but observing the liturgical year in a personal way, in a family way, um, really sort of forces you to welcome the the life of the church into your own home. Yeah, and you can do things like you were just talking about: incorporate the Marian antiphons. You can you can incorporate uh, morning and evening prayer as a family. Um, my wife is really really uh, good about. Um, uh, she loves doing this to sort of a creative outlet for her, but but good about incorporating the liturgical year into the things that she cooks as well. So oh, you're wonderful. Um, so a lot of the food that we have throughout the liturgical year is liturgically appropriate or, or theme for either a given saint's day or for the, the season of the church's year, et cetera. Uh, and that's a really fun way to do it as well. Um, yeah, and we have found, good. yeah, we, our oldest now is seven. Our youngest is almost one. So obviously there's a, there's a wide variety of sort of understanding in, in what is going on and how we observe these, these religious practices as a family. But we have found that the kids really, really get excited, you know, when, when we can build it in sort of an age appropriate child-friendly way, some observation of the liturgical year, they get really excited. And um, rather than having two days every year, you know, thank uh, their birthday and Christmas that they look forward to, we have <laughs> many days throughout the year that mm -hmm. they, they get excited. And then to your previous point about connecting fasting and feasting, you know, we try to, and I encourage everyone to do this. We try to observe penances on every Friday and then in the, in the church's penitential seasons, but it makes it, it makes it more meaningful for the kids when we emerge from Advent, you know, having tried to try to observe penances, we observe, we, we emerge from Advent and then can really just go crazy for all 12 days of Christmas. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. and, and so that, that makes it more meaningful for them and really more, um, more tangible, I think, more visceral. Yeah. yeah the, the other, the other advantage, um, you know, uh, to kind of bringing fasting in particular out of the context of, you know, this is only a church thing, right? Like if families and uh, individuals and communities can fast together, that makes it a corporate act of witness. Um, right, yeah. I'm pulling this point from a wonderful article that the historian Eamon Duffy wrote for First Things uh, called To Fast Again, where he made a really excellent point that fasting is, you know, is many things, but one of the things it is, is solidarity with the poor and the needy, as we all acknowledge the ways that that we are poor and we are needy and kind of, you know, uh, stand with uh, those, you know, members of society, members of the church who kind of have, have no choice but to fast when we voluntarily take on fasting. And so, you know, Duffy's broader point is the church loses something when fasting becomes, you know, something very laissez-faire when something is, when it's something, you know, taken on by individuals on a very, you know, individual basis, as opposed to something that, um, the body of the church as a whole can do. So uh, he's making a case for a recovery of this. And I think in our own lives and our own families and our own communities, we can do something to recover that by being intentional about fasting and by thinking of fasting, you know, as among other things, this, this witness to the way the church stands with the poor. That's a really good point. I remember several years ago, um, 
when now Senator Cory Booker, I believe he was still the mayor of Newark, New Jersey at the time. Um, he went on a food stamp fast hmm. and and he was he was lauded in the media for doing this because the point of his food stamp fast was to say, this is how someone on food stamps has to live if they have nothing else. If they have no other money to support themselves and they can only live on food stamps, this is what they eat. And he would, I think, tweet pictures of his meals or, or just maybe it was just updates on what he had, what he'd been able to eat that day on food stamps. Um, and so that was exactly what you're talking about. It was a fast of sorts in solidarity with the poor. Yeah. How, how, how glorious would it be if we as Catholics thought about our fast that way as well? Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just as guilty as anyone not doing that. I often just look at fasting as like, this is just the thing I've got to kind of muscle through. It makes me stronger, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then I get to the feasting rather than thinking this is something that I am, this is a suffering I'm voluntarily taking on. Um, not for the poor, um, exclusively, but for the poor through the suffering of Jesus, you know, for, for all those who suffer with our suffering Lord. Uh, and this is the way that I can unite my sufferings, um, to those, in my, in those in humanity who suffer, but most especially, most particularly, um, to the God man who suffered. Um, yeah, it's, it's a reminder of our common humanity and yeah. of our common need for a savior. Yeah, exactly. What a, what a, what a good way of thinking about fasting in a way that really sort of turns it on its head. The other response I had in thinking through what you just said was we often in, in secular circles, fasting has become very popular. There's a fast, mm. there's a, there's a fasting app, um, called zero that's been, I don't know, it's used by well over a million people, I think. And it's very simple. It basically just times, I think there are like the, the premium things you can pay for, but the very simple uh, version of the app, the free one is basically a timer. And you just say, okay, I'm not eating now, hit the start button. And then oh, it times you, and then you say, okay, I'm going to eat now. And and you stop. And it's, it's designed to promote intermittent fasting, which has been proven to have a bunch of health benefits, yada, yada, yada. Um, but that's, and those are all good. And I'm glad that, I'm glad that that's the case. I'm glad people can find intermittent fasting to be a, um, to be a sort of personally fulfilling thing to do. But our goal as Catholics, our reasons for fasting should never be primarily because this fasting will just make me feel better and make me a stronger person. Because the whole goal of fasting is to strengthen our reliance on the one who is strong, right? Right. Yeah, it's 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 a spiritual practice rather than something, you know, taken on for a therapeutic reason. Right. Um, and, you know, sometimes the kind of spiritual benefit of fasting comes from understanding how poorly you do at it, right? Like sometimes you, you'll make a big, you know, uh, commitment to fasting and then discover how hard that is, or you'll stumble and fall. And the key thing is turning to Christ in those moments, right? You know, the, yeah. the key thing is that um, the fasting should be bringing your attention back to, to Jesus. And that is, you know, that's the ultimate why of everything we do, you know, as Catholics, but um, it's important to remember that if we might get distracted by, you know, more worldly interpretations of what a fast could mean. Yes. Yeah, totally. Um, Now that doesn't mean that obviously it doesn't mean that you shouldn't, you know, that you can't enjoy some of those physical benefits that you may get from fasting, but there are certainly people who try intermittent fasting and don't feel good. And doesn't mean that they shouldn't do that as a spiritual exercise. Um, uh, so there was, there was a, um, when I was in college, I attended this, um, church pastor by a guy named Glenn Packham. This is before my conversion. So he was, he is not Catholic. He's actually, it's kind of a strange situation. He's, he's, he's at a Protestant non-denominational church, but he's ordained Anglican. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, he is interesting. He got his PhD from the university of Durham. 
Um, he's in a lot of sort of liturgical, um, liturgical, I think his, his PhD dissertation was something about the liturgy. Really interesting guy. I wouldn't be surprised if he joins us, joins us on this side of the Tiber at some point. But mm. I remember in, when I was in college, he was, he did a sermon on fasting and he was extolling this as a, as a spiritual practice and how we should do more of it. And he was, he was confessing. He was like, yeah, I, I'm not good at fasting. I don't like fasting. And he said, I used to make excuses for myself. And one day I said to my wife, Holly, this is him talking. I said to my wife, Holly, yeah, the thing is when I fast, I just, I just get really weak. I'm not good at it. <laughs> and then his wife, Holly said to him, yeah, Glenn, that's actually, that's called fasting. Like that's, that's the point. <laughs> that's it. That's what it's supposed to be. And he was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess you're right. So yeah, yeah where, the point where the point I am weak, weak there, he is strong. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, the, the one, the one thing I, I want to say while we're discussing fasting also is just, um, when I was working with the Aquinas Institute, the chaplaincy at, at Princeton, we uh, were talking to students about fasting and feasting. And we, we, we realized we wanted to be, you know, we realized we wanted to make sure we didn't, you know, push anyone into kind of exuberant uh, overcommitment to, yeah. to fasting, you know, yeah. in the way that, uh, you know, when you're young, you might, uh, you might be tempted to, uh, to, to overbalance like that. So we included in our reading packet, some letters from St. Francis de Sales, who's just a, a really wonderful spiritual advisor, right? You know, and he's got these letters just to people in the world, you know, uh, giving them advice, including uh, about fasting. And often his advice is, you know, not to overdo it, right? Yeah. To to kind of accept the sacrifices that God ends up asking of you rather than the like big sacrifices you like want to make yourself in a moment of enthusiasm. There's a letter to to a pregnant woman, right? Who's asking about fasting and he says, you know, no, don't do that. You know, nourish without scruple your body. This is the, right. this is the quote right. he says, um, you will not lack for mortifications of the heart, which is the only Holocaust God desires from you. So that is, that is really helpful, I think, as a way to, you know, to put in context the practice of fasting, that it's all about, you know, what God desires from us and the, you know, sacrifices he might ask for us. Some of those are, you know, part of just the regular practice of the church. You know, some of those might be additional ones, but we should be kind of listening, right? You know, staying attentive to what God is asking from us and, you know, having trusted spiritual advisors who can help us discern that rather than overbalancing into uh, something that goes beyond what God's asking at that, at this moment. Yeah, it's a really good point, Alexi. I'm glad you mentioned that. I think in general, people should fast with the guidance of a spiritual director. Um, and that spiritual director can, or at least should be able to help you determine you know, how much is too much, how much is appropriate for you. Uh, and everyone has a starting point too. So if you've yeah. fasted before, uh, you shouldn't just say like, I'm going to go 48 hours without food. That would be just downright irresponsible. And you should definitely, definitely not do that. So, you know, when possible fast with the advice of a spiritual director and don't take on, don't take on too much too soon for sure. Um, on your point about the, the pregnant woman to whom Francis of Sales was writing, uh, you will not lack for mortifications of the heart, I think is what he said. Mm -hmm. Um, it reminds me, one of my work colleagues just told me this week, uh, apparently there's this, there's a story out there. I, I, you know, it's all hearsay, but I can see it for sure. I can see it happening. Apparently the Exodus 90 programmers, the, the planners, the, the heads of that program went to, uh, do some focus groups on whether or not they should put together an Exodus 90 type program for women. Mm -hmm. And they pitched this idea to a bunch of religious nuns and the nuns said, um, women suffer enough already. You don't need to do Exodus 90 for them. <laughs> and I was like, 
That's super true. Truer words were never spoken. 100% agree. Yeah, um, I think, I think you know, not to go too far afield here, but I think, I think this is an interesting you know, aspect of embodiment, right? Uh, yeah. Part of which is being men and women and there being uh, real differences there. And that, you know, sometimes, sometimes it seems like a part of that, uh, those differences is, you know, men kind of have to choose to take on some things that uh, for women in many cases feel like less of a choice, right? Yeah. You know, so I'm thinking about fathers and mothers, right? Where mm-hmm. for mothers, there's this really primal connection to a child and then um, for fathers, there's a need to choose that, right? And it's it's not that you know mothers don't choose to you know accept motherhood, and fathers you know uh, don't have an existing connection. But it seems like there's a there is a difference there where there's mm-hmm. more of a need to you know to consciously enter into a call uh, that isn't you know a part of you the way that uh, a child is a part of the mother at first. So. Yeah. Um, well, certainly biologically, our bodies bear witness to that, right? Because yeah. for for nine months, the woman cannot forsake that. I mean, literally biologically, there's there's not a choice there that happens. I mean, obviously, there there is abortion uh, and voluntary abortion, but short of that, the woman doesn't have a choice. The woman can't just abandon her child like the man can, and many men do just decide, like, I don't want to father this child, so I'm going to go my own way. Thanks. So even our bodies, I think, bear witness to that that difference in sort of innate dependency. Yeah. 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 There's, you know, there's a way that men have the possibility of walking away and then growing right. in virtue is about, you know, not doing that, right. Living up to responsibilities and, you know, taking on the things that, um, require you to, uh, commit to something. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, returning to this idea of the sort of the novice, the fasting novice, um, what are some, re- oh, and I should also mention actually just to round out your point about, you know, not doing too much too soon. Fasting is not strictly about food, which is why St. Francis of Sales says you will not lack for mortifications of the heart. You know, fasting is, is about a posture of the heart. Uh, and fasting can, can happen through many things. So you can fast from video games, you can fast from technology, mm-hmm. you can fast from food, which is sort of the primary way that the church generally talks about fasting, but there are plenty of things that you can fast from. Um, that can be spiritually beneficial for you. And so you might find yourself in, you know, you have a condition like hypoglycemia or, or diabetes, and you're not able to fast from food. Totally fine. There are plenty of fasts that you can do, um, you know, and, and, and mortifications that you can offer up. And by the way, uh, embracing the hypoglycemia or diabetes that you have is in itself also mortification. So in the words of St. Francis Sales, you will not lack for mortifications of the heart. But yeah. Alexei, where, where I was going next with, with this, and this is probably a question we can, we can sort of wrap up on. For, for those who um, who are listening to this and think I need to get more serious about embracing the fasting and feasting of the church, um, do you have any sort of beginner's recommendations for for where or how they might start? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's wonderful resources like Magnificat uh, that give you a sense of where we are in the liturgical life of the church. Uh, so uh, Magnificat has daily prayers. It also has, you know, right at the front of every issue, a rundown of the month, including, you know, days of, uh, days of, you know, celebration of one sort or another, you know, whether it's memorial or a feast, uh, you know, uh, days marked, uh, for, for fasting, you know, each, each Friday should be a day of some kind of penance. Uh, and, um, you know, the, uh, historic one was, uh, you know, abstinence from meat. Right. Um, but, you can you can start thinking about how 
fasting and feasting kind of fit into the uh, fit into your time, right? You know, and uh, and ways that your time can you know uh, adjust a little around the uh, demands of fasting and feasting. You know, and yes, uh, be careful about taking things on. Think a little bit about you know. Uh, this about everything being an experiment, something you're ready to revise rather than committing all at once forever. You know, if uh, if you need to adjust what kind of Friday penance you're doing, you know, based on the uh, the needs of your family, uh, then that is that is something definitely to consider, uh, and there's no shame in that. But starting with something is good, right? You know, find some way to begin uh, celebrating the feast of the church year and. Uh, taking on the the fasts of the church year, uh, there's always something you can offer a fast up for, right? You know, I'm sure you have, you have something or someone you want to pray for, or you have, you know, a desire to pray for the intentions of the Holy Father, or for the, you know, uh, the needs of, of our nation, right? You know, there's lots of things that you can think about as, you know, what you're offering your, your fast for, in addition to, of course, the hope that uh, it is part of the process of you yourself being more conformed to Christ and uh, understanding your dependence on him and uh, your need to turn to him every day. Yeah. Well said. Uh, and uh, I encourage our listeners once again, as we he- prepare to head into Lent to maybe um, make this the first Lent that if, if you haven't done it previously, make this the first Lent where you take on some, some conscious uh, penance um, and, and decide to try to apply some of these fasting principles that Alexi has talked about uh, with us today. Alexi, thanks so much for joining us. To my listeners, uh, I want to remind you to go check out Alexi's games, Cloven Pine Games. They have a profile on itch.io. You can also find the Cloven Pine Games Substack uh, and the Cloven Pine Games Twitter handle uh, and follow his work there. Uh, I'm certainly going to go check out check out some of the offerings and see I, i'm still thinking about one of these role-playing non-board games since this is a new it would be a new experience for me alexi that'd be awesome and hey uh if you want to check it out and uh have me back on to talk about it i think that could be really cool okay yeah that sounds great uh well we we were already talking uh, before we hit hit go here about a, another topic certainly game related um that we can do for later this year so once uh, once you and uh leah and beatrice get settled with the new one Uh, we'll, uh, we'll reconnect and make that happen. So thanks so much for joining us, Alexi. Really appreciate it. Um, uh, how can our listeners reach you if they have questions or want to chat a little bit more about that or where can they follow more of your work apart from the Cloven Pine game stuff? Yeah, you can also find me, you know, under my own name on Twitter, uh, at Alexi Sargent. That's, uh, Sargent, S-A-R-G-E-A-N-T. I've got a website too, where you can find some examples of my writing, you know, here and there around the, the internet. And um, there's a way to contact me through that website. If you've got questions about what we talked about or just about life as a Catholic, I'm happy to chat. Sounds great. Well, thanks once again, Alexi, for your time today. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Appreciate the talk about fasting and feasting today. To my listeners, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. If you have any feedback for me or a question for Alexi and you just want to email it to me and I can forward it on to him, I'd be happy to do that. My email is Zach, Z-A-C, at creedlepodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.